Tom and I were just talking about John Brown, as one does on an afternoon. Uh, I'm reading this book, Cloud Splitter. You ever heard uh-huh. of it? I've heard of it. I've never read it. <laughs> it's pretty fucking good. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, it's just telling Tom. It's just like, uh, you know, could you just imagine getting a posse of your friends and going to Kansas and just hacking some slave owners to bits. <laughs> it's just like, well, you know, it's a nice afternoon, nice way to spend your afternoon. <laughs> you know, um, I have a friend who, I think this is okay for me to repeat, I have a friend who was a student of Eric Foner. Oh, And damn. learned from Eric Foner that Foner and all his, you know, he, he comes from a kind of old communist family, going yeah. back, you know, to the 30s and so on. And, uh, Foner, I think, remained a member, if I'm remembering this, I say this with just a little bit of disavowal, um, of, like, the Friends of John Brown Society or something like that that gathered every year at his grave, which is, like, way the hell up in upstate. It's, like, at the Canadian border. Yeah, North Elba. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They got, you know, like, um, I, I imagine this is still happening to this day, that on his, I guess, his birthday, probably... I realize how much of this I'm making up. Maybe it's his birthday. Maybe it's the anniversary <laughs> of the Harper Ferry Raid. I don't know. <laughs> they gather like there's a kind of society of old communists who gather at his grave, though, which I've always thought was very cool. That's the shit, honestly. Just yeah, like a pilgrimage. That's... Yeah. Yeah. Where, 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 where is his grave at? Did you say? It's called North Elba. It's like in the Adirondacks. Interesting. Yeah. It like. It was this farm they lived on next to a settled community of former slaves, like escaped slaves, called Timbuktu. And uh, in general, escaped slaves gathered near the Canadian border for obvious reasons. Right, right. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, my my guy was like, uh, he he definitely, uh, as Tom said, he's the first crazy crazy ass white boy. You. <laughs> 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 a, a grand tradition. <laughs> I love the story of you know the the attempt to recruit Frederick Douglass to come with him on the Harper's Ferry raid. <laughs> That's what I was just telling him about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Frederick Douglass is like, dude, okay, like. <laughs> Go for but it. You, but you have to say, I think, in retrospect, it's hard to come to a conclusion besides like it worked. It didn't work in exactly the way he thought. Yeah. Right. But it did. It did actually work. Yeah. And you know, for that, I mean, you know, it's impossible to kind of give enough credit. No, it, it's like I was telling Tom. Like as soon as like the Fugitive Slave Act and like Missouri Compromise and everything like John Brown was like dead certain this was only going to end one way and it was civil war it's like he knew it really before anybody else and so like yeah and he also knew that there was going to be a central role for the enslaved in that process right which right. no you know very few northern abolitionists realized at that point right 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 <laughs> yeah no uh d- d- not relevant really to what we're talking about today but just you know something I've just been thinking about <laughs> Um, okay so welcome to the trailbillies everybody this week we are joined by gabriel wynant professor of history at uh, university of chicago he's here to talk to us about his new book the next shift the fall of industry and the rise of healthcare in rust belt america how's it going this week gabe good thanks for having me of course um but before we get you know into the weeds and everything you know, and before the listener sees this and they groan and they say, 
Not another political economy episode. These guys are dilettantes. They don't know shit about political economy. Well, that's why we called in the heavy hitters. That's baby. why. <laughs> <laughs> we finally have someone who does know what they're talking about. Some heft. Yeah. Um, and I, and also like before we get started, I just want to say that like in my opinion, and this is also what Tom and I were just talking about before you got on. I feel like this is kind of going to be like a spooky episode. Like, I don't think that was your intention in writing the book, but sort of like Das Kapital, there is a lot of specters, like ghosts, residues from the past, like truly like, you know, history weighing like a nightmare on the brains of the living hours. For sure. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to hear how, um, hear what you think about how the story I tell about Pittsburgh maps onto uh, your part of Appalachia. Whether Pittsburgh is part of Appalachia or not is, as you know, a kind of very contested question. <laughs> is um, that? I feel like it's the, the, the science the Paris, is in on that. <laughs> the Paris of Appalachia? That, yeah, 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 yeah. Paris, right. <laughs> anyway, I, you know, I think that, um, well, I'll be, like I say, I'll, I'll be interested in, in hearing what you, what you think about, you know, uh, Kentucky and so on as compared to that. Um, but definitely places where the history, I mean, what unites them in some form is places where the history of extraction and processing of mineral resources into capital um, continues to condition current experiences down to the present, even though that process may be long diminished. Absolutely. You, you have a line, honestly, that just really cuts straight to the core of it. And it's kind of like what we're going to be trying to figure out today, which is like, how do you explain the, as you put it, the absent presence of one group of workers. In the case of your book, it's the steel workers. Where we live, it's the coal miners. You know, how do you explain that along with the present absence of another group of workers, like the healthcare workers? Because, like, you know, as you point out, like, in, in Pittsburgh, you've got all these old markers of the past, like the Pittsburgh Steelers. And didn't you say there's, like, a beer <laughs> called, like, Iron City or something? Iron City beer. It's like the local shitty lager. Right. Um, we don't have that, unfortunately. We don't have any. Uh, we don't it's have good. any. I, I it. it's I've enjoyed an Iron City at Primanti Brothers with those big ass sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like, so yeah, like before we get into it, I just want to like, you know, maybe as a way to kind of like juggle these two locations or experiences. Like, this kind of started for me, like, I knew about your book all throughout last year, but as I said to you in the DM, like, I'm a very slow reader, and so I was like, I'm going to need some time to, like, go through that. Um, and what made me go through it was this flood happened in our community, right? This, like, very catastrophic 1,000-year flood. And I was at someone's house helping them do cleanup, and we were, you know, cleaning out their basement and, you know, hauling everything out and everything. And, like, we uncovered under all this rubble, I mean, this is metaphorical too, in all kinds of ways. We uncovered under all this like mud and rubble, this big sign. And it was from a strike, a steel workers strike at our local hospital, because all of our nurses here are steel workers mm -hmm. um, in the steel worker union. And it was from a strike in the eighties. And so I asked her about it and she starts like going into the long history of like the, you know, the labor struggle in the hospitals around here. And it just, it was weird. It just kind of like opened something up because like where, you know, if you live here and you saw this with the teacher strikes in West Virginia, everybody always talks about it, like the history of the coal miners labor, labor struggle here. You know, it's like the heritage and everything. You never hear about like the healthcare workers. You never, even though there's been multiple strikes, some of them have been 
quite you know nasty and and uh, you know contentious, and so it's like you know you never hear about that despite the fact that all the abandoned buildings in our formerly abandoned buildings in our downtown are now occupied by healthcare facilities. They're just gobbling property up left and right. Like it's the biggest yeah, particularly employer. Particularly like also like pulmonary clinics that deal with the legacy of black lung disease and those type of things. Too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I when I um when I kinda of take my show on the road and give lectures or whatever, I often begin with uh, like a series of slides showing um you know, like obviously you guys know the New York Times genre story where they go to report on like why do people in this diner support Donald Trump. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I collected a bunch of those. It's ton- and not just the New York Times. You know, every national publication did a million of these between 2015 and the present. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Last week. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and obviously they especially like doing it in sort of deindustrialized places. Um, and so, I, you know, I paid attention to them and I realized, I noticed that very often in these stories, a lot of the people they're interviewing are actually healthcare workers. Right. Um, who they're interviewing about, like, well, what does it mean that the steel mill closed or whatever, right? And there's, there's one of these from Williamson, West Virginia, um, which, you know, it's a New York Times story from 2016. Uh, and they interview a pulmonary, I think a pulmonary um, or respiratory therapist of some kind um, who retrained, like, to get. Oh no, they that's right. They interview someone who works at the yeah, at the Black Lung Clinic. And they also interview someone who retrained as a phlebotomist, but so many people have done that now that she can't get work as a phlebotomist. And it was just like these people are forcing their way in to the story from the outside. Right? Like they're not what's being looked for. They're not supposed to be kind of in the frame. Yeah. Um, but there's too many of them, so they keep showing up. <laughs> yeah. It even like slips into some of the criticism of your book like one of which i you know i mentioned to you in the dm but like the end line was like dr why not does not care about like the the steel workers in their plight it's just like where where are the steel workers it's like where are the coal miners it's the same thing it's just yeah, like it's like you, you're more likely to find chimney sweeps these days you know? <laughs> it's like they exist really i know we still do have like steel workers and we yeah. still have coal miners too but it's it's not like the um obviously it's not this region's biggest industry anymore um but so but that's why like your book if i understand it correctly it's not it's not a straightforward story of like the uh you know how this industry got to be um so expansive and and all-consuming but it's really a story of like working class formation like how how this class came into how this specific working class kind of came into being um and and that falls in line, honestly, like you had done a podcast on E.P. Thompson's book. And so, uh, you know, it's like there, there's a similarity there, like looking at like how these people get conscripted into this new industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's more to say about the kind of question of what, what are we talking about when we talk about working class formation? And I'll, you know, I'll comp to the fact that like E.P. Thompson's book is really the making of the English working class. Great book. 900 pages about village life in, you know, England in the late 1700s. So that's why we did a podcast to help people through it. Um, But, um, you know, that's really a book about emerging forms of radical politics and radical working class politics. Even, you know, kind of you, you see people in that book kind of beginning to invent Marxism and socialism for themselves before Marx has been born. 
Um, and that's why it's such a powerful book. And I can't claim that my book really does that for healthcare workers in the same kind of way. And so there's a kind, you know, there's a sort of a nuance I have to add to the, if I want to use the concept of class formation, which I do. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm writing about my own moment or the kind of immediate precursors to my own or our moment. Right. And so it, it's, it's more of a kind of gamble that this is going to pay off in some political form. But, you know, basically, I mean, the thing that, I mean by working class formation, and I think a helpful way of thinking about it is that you have all of the people who, in the broadest sense, like are the proletariat, you know, everyone who depends on selling their labor power for their survival because they have no other means of subsistence. Um, and maybe they succeed in selling their labor power, or maybe they don't, right? And then they're kind of thrown back onto other forms of survival or punished or whatever. Um, but then within that group, right, there are kind of uh, that group is not kind of like uniformly evenly distributed across a flat landscape, right? right. Like it's lumpy and uneven. Um, and there are, cl- there are clustering phenomena, you know, particular occupations and industries obviously are bigger than others. Different kinds of people get involved in different kinds of occupations and work. That's a cl- question often about race and gender, although lots of other things too, right? Education, skill, many, many different dimensions. Um, and then, you know, forms of kind of collective experience and identity and potentially consciousness and militancy, one hopes, coagulate in certain places, right? Um, and so one thing I was trying to do in the book was to say, if we want to think about working class formation, we have to think about it as a kind of rolling historical process, right? Uh, as opposed to a moment when, like, the whole proletariat opens its eyes and sees what's going on, right. like, all at once or something like that. Right. Um, and if you want to see it as a rolling historical process, you have to, you know, be able to account for like these kind of shifts over time. Of, you know, there's kind of what I described as a coagulation over here and then it kind of breaks apart. And there's another one over there and you got to try to understand the connections between them and so on. So let me just finish this answer by saying, uh, you know, more concretely, I felt like every story that we had about working class formation basically was in one way or another about the cycle from the mid to late 19th century through the 1970s and 1980s. Because that's like the main example, right? right? That's like right. when it all went down. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that left the kind of closure of the factory or the mill or the mine as the end of the story, right? Um, and, or a little bit, we had some kind of scholarly work on, you know, life and work in the low-wage service economy or this kind of thing in which that precursor, that long previous cycle was like a very distant and disconnected memory uh, or not really relevant. Right. And I wanted to tell a story that had deindustrialization in the middle of it, right? right. So you could kind of see that kind of shifting, uneven, rolling dynamic. Yeah, because I mean, a, a, a big argument right now is that, yeah, like we live in the post-industrial, like sort of a service economy. Um, and there's all kinds of implications in that. Uh, but it does seem to indicate that like, um, that there is no, maybe I'm being unfair to people when I say this, but like that, that the, uh, you have this idea of like the precariat and that, I don't know. I don't know how people use that term. I don't know if they're t- talking about people mostly in the informal economy, like selling copper and stuff. I think it means a lot of different things, which is why I don't really use it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so it's, 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 yeah, it's too vague. It's too hard to like, kind of like grasp onto. Um, but yeah, like. We, we can, you know, we can start talking about this when we talk about Pittsburgh, but just like as a way of sort of comparison. So where we live, we live in Eastern Kentucky and 
the the story that you outline it it's mirrors in many ways what happened here you had the sort of labor battles of the 30s and 40s the coal industry emerges from world war ii um you know with coal in high demand but a lot of their union uh, a lot of their workforce is unionized but they're kind of being priced out by the rise of oil and so they need to cut costs and they need to mecha mechanize and so what happens is is they sit down with john lewis you know the umd wa leader in 1950 and prior to this john lewis had been trying to establish a uh you know wealth and retirement fund for the miners and and so the, like the negotiation like the sort of bargain that they strike out is that the umwa and john l lewis will sign off on the coal industry being able to mechanize in turn for getting these health benefits and so over the course of the 50s, they lose like the, something like 300,000 jobs, you know, to mechanization. And in this process, it's even more kind of, uh, you know, something about like living in a rural area is it kind of like cuts out a lot of the sort of like social buffers and, and these sort of like intermediary stages because like the UMWA even wound up setting up its own hospital system at yeah. that point. Yeah. And so... Um, like you can see the process that you're outlining like kind of almost uh perfectly it was a little more staggered here i think because coal unlike steel kind of has more uses in the sense that like we use it for energy too and so there was a huge coal boom here in the 70s and i think that that um may have kind of stalled out on the major healthcare expansion that you outlined happened in Pittsburgh in the 60s and 70s. Although I don't know that for the for a fact. That's just kind of, you know, just looking back through newspaper articles and things. But um but yeah, it what you get is you get this process whereby like the UMWA basically signs an agreement that is kind of their own death knell in a way. Um but it also becomes the basis for the gradual, you know, building up and construction of this healthcare industry like quite literally because the U former umwa hospital system was eventually bought out by one of the biggest hospital chains around here appalachian regional Healthcare, and so it is you know it's almost a quite literal just handing over of the <laughs> yeah <laughs> of the reins. i think there's still a couple places in, in across appalachia that still have the name miners regional hospital or something like that right but, like i know there's one in central pa somewhere um, there's different versions of the story around the country. I also like to point people to Kaiser, which you know we people know about as a healthcare company, right? Kaiser right. Permanente on the West Coast mainly. Um, Kaiser was an industrial firm, right? It was a concrete construction and shipbuilding and steel firm. Um, really? Yeah. I didn't know Henry that. <laughs> Kaiser was a steel magnate. Yeah, I didn't know and, that either. And um, you know, in basically during the war, uh, you know, he set up a kind of one of the very early, what would become one of the very early HMOs for the you know the the war workers more or less building ships in the ports of California, um, and then, you know gradually over time like that became the whole company. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you it seems like you have this moment in like the eighties, nineties when you've got the uh, sort of consolidation of a lot of healthcare, but like the sort of precipitate precipitous decline of these industries i just wanted to read something for both of you guys um that i found very fascinating uh this is from an article in two the year 2000 it's from pikeville which is a big it's like 
this region's sort of biggest city. It's got like 8,000 people in a college. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not very big. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I thought this was a fascinating look into like how healthcare kind of became this quote unquote solution for quote unquote economic development in this area. This is the opening. This is the opening statement in this article from the Appalachian News Express, August two thousand. Every time Walter May sees an ambulance from Pike County speed past him on the mountain parkway on its way to Lexington with a patient, two things immediately cruise through his mind with it. First and foremost, May, the president and CEO of Pikeville Medical Methodist Hospital, said he thinks of the safety and health of the person being transported. Well, that's good. Of but, course. Well, yes. but, <laughs> that's that. his vocation. That's nice that that's where he goes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also can't help but think about the millions of dollars Pikeville and Pike County are missing out on because of the thousands of people who are taken each year to Lexington for medical care, both urgent and routine. It's almost like every ambulance going down the road, there's an armored truck behind it taking money, May said. That money could could go all over this community and we could benefit from it <laughs> okay all over <laughs> i just okay <laughs> i love it because it's like that scene in there will be blood he's like there's an ocean of oil beneath my feet or the i'm the only one who can get at it <laughs> right and you know as in that case it's sort of true right it's just that like the ocean of oil in this case is like the blood of the people. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Almost literally. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, so let, let's, that's, that's Eastern Kentucky, right? Let's talk about Pittsburgh. Like, you start your book with this kind of image of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, kind of like looking out over the entire city of Pittsburgh, you know, from like the heights of the U.S. Steel Tower. Um, you know, and you, and you give a kind of uh, anecdote about how, like, I think it was like a court proceeding or something or a labor dispute. They were claiming that their workers don't exist. Like, you know, why do they claim this? Why do they claim that their workers don't exist? And like, what, what is, you know, what can it tell us about the kind of like various dilemmas or as you put it, like trilemmas facing policymakers and technocrats in like wealthy Western democracies? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's been a kind of on again, off again campaign to organize the major tertiary hospitals of Pittsburgh since the late 1960s and even with previous moments in the 30s and 40s. But really, since the late 1960s, when what was then a local 1199 tribe, which eventually became part of SEIU, continues to try to this day uh, against quite vicious anti-union resistance. And so in such a, you know, one such kind of flare up, you know, they were having a proceeding before the National Labor Relations Board over retaliatory firing, I think. Um, And UPMC, which let me just say for the listener, uh, as of today, is the largest private employer in Pennsylvania. Mm. Uh, It has, I think, over 100,000 employees. It operates a few dozen hospitals, many other kinds of facilities. Uh, It's a, a, you know, it's a monster. has a hospital in Kazakhstan, has a hospital in Ireland, has a hospital in Italy. Um, Kazakhstan. Yeah. Kazakhstan, I don't quite know what that's about. Um, but um, anyway. Borat. He's got a health, high health bill. Uh, so anyway, they claimed in this NLRB dispute, because SEIU, I think, had filed an unfair labor practice charge against them, if I'm remembering right. Uh, and they claimed in this labor dispute that we're not actually the proper target of this dispute because we, UPMC, Inc., uh, have no employees, 
And the specific content of that argument was like a kind of parent company, subsidiary company type argument. Like you got to take it up separately with every hospital and whatever and <laughs> unit and whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, there's two things I want to say about this. One is um, three things. Sorry. <laughs> One is, I, you know, when I was writing this dissertation as a dissertation, I was a graduate student who was also being told I'm not an employee. Right. Was also tried to form a union in the teeth of that. And that was a big part of the motivation for kind of thinking about this story is a lot. I went to grad school at Yale. I lived in New Haven, which is a deindustrialized, immiserated town with like, you know, the Death Star that birthed the CIA at the heart of it. Right. <laughs> right. And so, <laughs> um, you know, I was like doing a lot of kind of reflecting on my own situation in various ways and struggles there um, through writing this. Two, um, I discovered as I was doing the research that actually after the Wagner Act was passed in 1935, whether or not it covered hospitals was very ambiguous. Um, that Wagner Act, National Labor Relations Act, you know, the kind of basic labor law. Right. Um, whether it covered hospitals was very ambiguous because it covered corporations engaged in interstate commerce. And hospitals at that time, you know, there were no hospital chains then. There were no for-profit hospitals then, really. I mean, just none that I know of anyway, maybe one or two on the margin. Um, and so hospitals were able to say, look, we're philanthropic charities. What we're doing is not commerce. And therefore, our relationship with our employees is not an employer-employee relationship in this legal sense. And indeed, there were efforts to organize by the CIO hospital workers in Pittsburgh in the 30s and 40s, which ran into this argument and it got litigated and then eventually got resolved by everyone's favorite, the Taft-Hartley Act, which just said, okay, hospitals are out. Um, And so from the 40s to the 70s, healthcare workers were excluded from labor law, um, excluded from like wage and hour law too, the Fair Labor Standards Act. and, you know, this is, I, th- I think it's helpful to think of this in ter- to get to your question about the trilemma. Yeah. Uh, it's helpful to think about this in terms of like different levels of analysis. So what I just described is a kind of like legal institutional level, right? Like here's how this labor market is organized legally, institutionalized legally. That means that um, the employers in this labor market are going to have access to the most vulnerable and marginal layers of the proletariat, right? They're going to hire people who can't get in to the more secure parts of the labor market, right? Uh, which is going to mean women in Pittsburgh, African-Americans, you know, elsewhere in the country, like immigrants, you know, tons of healthcare workers in New York City, for example, come from, uh, you know, the Caribbean and so on. Um, and then finally, there's a kind of like economic layer that I think is helpful to think about uh, because healthcare, this is especially true in the earlier 20th century, but it remains true to the present. Healthcare is what economists will call labor intensive, right? And like, it's not an industry that lends itself that well to like productivity increase, whether in the form of mechanization or in the form of, um, you know, kind of improved processes, for, you know, refining of the division of labor. And here I think it's helpful to just like think about, like if you ever read the famous beginning of The Wealth of Nations where Adam Smith talks about a pin factory. Right. Nail, nail, nails, not, I mean, he calls nails pins. Um, and he's like, look, we used to have it so that each guy makes a whole pin himself. And then we realized we could divvy it up so that each person kind of does a little part of the process of making pins. And this means that we can make more pins for less money. 
if we do that, which means we can sell pins for cheaper, which means more people will buy them, which means we'll make more, which means we can pay our workers better and our workers can buy more shit, right? And so right. Like, there's a kind of virtuous circle that's supposed to come from increasing the productivity of labor. Then think about the elements of that, falling prices, rising wages, and then think about the healthcare system. Right, which is like right. has rising prices and stagnant wages. Stagnant wages. <laughs> this thing that's supposed to be like fundamental to capitalism, right? And we've long thought of as like a kind of core dimension of what makes the capitalist mode of production like this dynamic revolutionary force, right? That it gets more productive all the time. We're increasingly like a lot of our employment is in this sector where that doesn't seem to be true, and so that's the economic reason why employers in healthcare are interested in this channel into the bottom of the labor market, right? Because uh, the main way that they can actually like come out, you know, margin positive or whatever, revenue, po- however they would put it, uh, right. <laughs> is by controlling their labor costs, either by holding wages down or by um, holding staffing down, which has right. become a major thing in healthcare. That's and, uh, saying they don't exist. Right. Right. Um, and... Um, you know, finally, this brings me to the thing you asked about the trilemma. So this is not my idea. This is the kind of idea I imported from a sociologist. But uh, this is the idea that, you know, overall, as industrial societies transition into service economy societies, right, they're going to encounter this problem in some significant form, right? The transfer of labor from high productivity to low productivity sectors mm-hmm. is going to create a bunch of zero-sum problems if it's, you know, within set of capitalist social relations because you don't have that kind of pie getting bigger thing in the same way. Right. And that, so that sets up a choice between three things that you want as a politician, presumably, uh, of which you can have any two. That's a trilemma. And the three are low unemployment, high wages, and a small public sector. Right, because you don't want to, a large public sector forces you to think about taxation or whatever. Right, right. Well, you and I might like that, but you know. Right. Um, <laughs> and so you can have um, you can have high wages and low unemployment if you will accept a large public sector. In other words, bring service work into the public sector, right, and therefore guarantee that there's a lot of good jobs. Or you can have high wages in the private sector if you'll accept high unemployment, which means like the French do this kind of, or this was, they were long an example of this, regulate the labor market through labor law, through, um, you know, various kinds of rules about hours and retirement and unemployment insurance and stuff like that. Um, But that's going to mean you're going to have higher unemployment because it raises the costs of hiring someone. Or you can have low unemployment and low wages at, in the private sector, and this is basically the U.S. path, right. roughly, um, if you deregulate the private sector labor market so that employers can – it's then not expensive for them to create jobs, and they can create a bunch of shitty jobs. Right, um, which is what we have. We have a bunch of shitty – a lot of shitty jobs. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which gets back to what we were talking about earlier, this process of like working class formation. Like I use the word precariat, but only because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. But like, yeah, there, there is a question of like, how do you characterize, yeah, the American workforce, the American proletariat? We have a lot of shitty jobs and they don't pay good. <laughs>
like this also like the economic process you were just kind of talking about like trying to um you know do innovations in productivity in the workplace and everything like this this affects the sort of pricing structure of healthcare like i there's like a dynamic of healthcare that i kind of wanted to lock in early on which is that like it is always inflating it's always going like you can't <clears throat> as tom's pointed out you can't walk into a hospital and say uh all right there's the x-ray for $35 and the you know splinter removal for $5. You you don't, you know, you that's not up front. None of this and you don't have any idea how those things are priced. Um and so I mean, I don't know if they're I assume they're regulated. There's no price controls on healthcare services, are there? Sort of. I mean, it's extremely complicated. Um <laughs> <laughs> and we and we don't have to get into it. We can, if you want, we could probably save that maybe for later if we talk about like the Medicare reform in the eighties. But like, yeah, that's a good place to get into it. But yeah, I think the point is is that like there is a problem with this industry, which that technocrats always kind of have to go back and try to tinker with it uh, to kind of keep it under control in a way to keep the prices under control, which is probably why you get the Clintons trying to tinker with it in the nineties and Obama with the ACA and the. 2000s um but you know you know so anyways all that aside so earlier you mentioned that you had started looking at this and then looked at you know the wagner act in the 30s and sort of like who got to be a worker and who didn't and this has like a basis like the current status of a lot of these workers has a basis in you know, what you call sort of social citizenship and, uh, you know, who, determining who got to be a worker and who didn't in the 30s and 40s. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to talk about that, right? Like maybe go back in time a little bit. Like what what is the dissolution of the New Deal state? Like what can it tell us about how it was set up? And I guess, yeah. can you can you explain to us the concept of, of social citizenship and like how that played out in determining who who wasn't a worker? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, you know, the kind of long, painful, like, period of neoliberalism gives us the opportunity and maybe kind of forces us to just, like, look at the New Deal in a different kind of way. Um, you know, when something falls apart, you can kind of see more of its inner structures, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, um, you know, I think we have had a story for a long time um, – about like the New Deal was this kind of moment of working class unity, right? And it was that in really important ways. Um, and then on top of that, there was this story that kind of got added about like, okay, but it, like, you know, excluded African-Americans in a bunch of important ways, but like it was still good. And we still, you know, should do it again or something like that yeah. just without the bad parts, right? <laughs> um, right. And again, I'm sympathetic to elements of that. You yeah. know, it's not like I think the New Deal like was, was bad or something like this. Um, but it seems to me like that's a pretty unsystematic way of thinking about um, like what happened in the 30s and 40s. And in particular, the ways that, um, you know, the places in the economy where working class organization really emerged in mass production industry in particular, um, you know, and where working class people and their and their organizations had real economic and political leverage. So that's talking about coal, steel, auto production, electrical workers, these kinds of industries. Um, or if you want to think in terms of companies, you know, U.S. Steel, General Motors, GE, right? Um, those workers led a kind of 
there was a period in the 30s especially where those workers kind of led something like a kind of class-wide movement, right? Not everyone participated, but they were kind of at the vanguard of something like a class-wide movement um, and that confronted in a new way, you know, racial segregation, it confronted in a new way um, the kind of constitutional order, um, you know, for decades, the Supreme Court had been throwing out like every kind of uh, social policy regulation and that, that had to go. Uh, anyway, then like through the experience of the war and especially the kind of Red Scare in the 40s, um, the, like this movement kind of loses its initiative and momentum. It, it turns from- away from these sort of like universal political questions as I think you you have a sentence for kind of like encapsulating this, but yeah, they kind of turn away from these universal political questions and then start, and this happened in the UMWA, start dialing in on how best to serve their own memberships. Yeah. And you know, that doesn't happen because like they're assholes or they're up right. to no good, right? It happens because of pressures that they're under. It's a totally um, reasonable, I mean, it, you know, it's like, the, would you make that deal? I'd probably make that deal. It's a totally right, reasonable... Mean, now it makes sense to criticize Lewis for making that deal in retrospect, right? right? But, like, um, you know, the environment of the late 1940s in particular, uh, right, Taft-Hartley has been passed. The, the labor movement goes into a period of very intense internecine internal conflict as it's being forced to expel its communists who have helped build it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, just a good example of this, Good Appalachian example. Uh, the United Electrical Workers, right, was the third largest CIO union after the auto workers and the steel workers, and they represented GE, Westinghouse, RCA, etc. Uh, you know, big centers of power in Pittsburgh and Erie, um, and they, they were the most of those three. They were the most militant, um, and they refused to comply with the Taft-Hartley exclusion of communist officers. Um, and so then had to exit or were kicked out of essentially the CIO. And the CIO then chartered another union called IUE uh, to raid existing UE shops yeah. and bring them into the UE. So there's this like multi-year, incredibly brutal conflict right. between two unions that have almost the same name, right? <laughs> Fighting <laughs> o- over, over this membership. And, you know, think about what that's going to be like, right? In, in 19, you know, 48, 49, 50, right, the Korean War, you have these Catholic priests kind of going to factories, telling people why their union is a communist front and, you know, is supporting the enslavement of their cousins back in Poland by the, the godless Soviets. Right. Um, it's just like, I mean, I'm not, you know, it sounds hyperbolic, but that's actually right. what it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... Um, so that's just like incredibly, you know, uh, it's a body blow to that militant labor movement. It's a big part of the reason why the CIO has to merge back in with the AFL, right, from which it had seceded and which it was supposed to kind of overtake and surpass. But by 1955, they merge again. Um, so, yeah, with all that, the CIO is like not in the position anymore to kind of represent the working class as a whole in the same way. I mean, it still typically kind of stakes out relatively progressive political position. You know, nominally, they still support like what we would now call Medicare for all, for example. But when Harry Truman tries to win Medicare for all, they're kind of like, we can't do this right now. Um, And similarly on civil rights questions, right? I mean, CIO unions play a really important role funding civil rights action, lobbying for it at the federal level. But internally, a lot of their workplaces are kind of you know, have forms of like 
deep-rooted, if informal, segregation that they're not that eager to confront. Right. Um, so, you know, that then I think, like, that's a story of the division, redivision of the working class. Yeah, and, you know, I think that, like, over time, what winds up happening is that you kind of, I think you describe it as a, a public-private welfare state, right? So, like, what happens is, in order to meet out and distribute uh, you know, sort of the gains of the excesses of this sort of like post-war era, uh, they get distributed through like the privately operated channels of like union membership. And so that kind of creates what you describe as like an inside zone and an outside zone, right? So it's like the inside zone, you have like the workers themselves and they get health care and their families get health care. But then like on the outside of that, you have a a large demographic, maybe like elderly people and the poor who, who don't get to partake in those same, um, in those same benefits. And so that kind of like comes to head right in the sixties. Like that kind of, you know, is when we get some of these larger wealth, you know, welfare reforms, like the great society and the war on poverty. And, and again, yeah, I'm realizing you asked me about social citizenship, which I did not answer. Before. No, it's all right. This, this is, but this is that right. Social citizenship is like the concept for, uh, or a concept to describe like forms of, you know, citizenship and inclusion that are not like political, not like the right to vote, serve on a jury, whatever, but about access to healthcare, access to retirement, to vacation, these kinds of things. And um, yeah, the weird effect of the division of the working class that I just described is that social citizenship gets divided with it. Um, and basically top tier access to, to social citizenship is private sector access. Right. That's like not necessarily what you would expect, right? Like um, in a previous moment, you know, like you have to get your healthcare on the market versus you, you know, the government will provide it. That would seem like uh, it might work in a different way. But the way it winds up working is that these industrial unions still have a lot of economic leverage over their employers. They just don't have the same kind of political power over the society as a whole anymore. And so they can win the kind of health and health and welfare plans that the miners and the steelworkers and so on win for themselves, which then cover their families. Um, and, you know, among other things, one thing that this does is uh, over the course of the 50s causes people who are in the working class, so can't just buy their own health care, um, but are not in that secure perimeter to get priced out, right? Because like now there are actually millions of working class people who do have health insurance for the first time and they're going to the hospital and they're going to the doctor and that demand is causing hospitals to upgrade and expand. Yeah, and they're building services. up. Yeah, this is a moment, for example, when hospitals switch from like, these kind of 30 bed ward type setups to like the now familiar two bed room. And uh, actually that's in the steelworkers contract. Like our members get to be in a room with just two beds in it. Um, so hospitals, you know, they want to build wards that can accommodate that or, or you know, units that can accommodate that um, and benefit from that demand. And so and charge more because the workers themselves are not bearing the brunt of the cost. And so now that fit that very familiar dynamic uh, where all this money is moving back and forth between your provider and your insurer, kind of out of sight of you, starts to come online. Right. Um, but if you don't have an insurer or if you don't have a good insurer because you, you're like a waitress rather than a steel worker, 
right? Or you're a retiree um, living on your social security and you need to go to the hospital too. Now it's a hospital whose services and prices are targeted at that insured steel worker. Um, and that starts to produce kind of anger and pr protest and resistance uh, from poor and old people over the course of the 50s. And already by like 57, 58 in Congress, they're kind of like, we're going to have to do something about this. This process eventually goes to 65 when they pass Medicare and Medicaid, which if you think about what are the two constituencies that are left out of the picture we're talking about, right? It's the old and the poor. Right, and those right. are the programs for the old and the poor. Yeah, it's interesting, like, this happened with the, you know, Wealth and Retirement Fund here and with the, you know, minor memorial hospitals, which is that, like, this, you know, sort of social citizenship that gets kind of, like, meted out and funnels all of this revenue into the healthcare system, it builds up the healthcare system, which also drives up the quality of care, which drives up the price. And so you kind of have this inflationary uh, dynamic where you're right, like the people that are sort of outside of that zone can no longer afford those products. And it's interesting, like, because I think we have this idea, or at least I did prior to reading your book, is that like, yeah, Medicare, Medicaid, they were the results of, well, I, to be honestly, I, to be honest, I probably saw it way cynically, which is that like Medicare and Medicaid was probably created because we were losing the Cold War, blah, blah. We needed to prove <laughs> that we could do this stuff. But, like, it's really it's really more um, nuanced than that. It's like they were trying to keep prices under control, basically, um, or, or at least this inflationary spiral in a way um, to kind of uh, intervene in the market on the supply or on the consumption side rather than on the supply side itself. Yeah, it doesn't – so because they intervene on the consumption side rather than on the supply side – it doesn't keep prices under control, right? Because right. the government is like, we're just going to pay for the people who <laughs> can't get there on their own. And, you know, I'm not saying that's bad. Like, I'm glad people got Medicare and Medicaid. Um, but, uh, you know, that imagine if instead the solution had been the federal government is going to stand up a system of hospitals for uh -huh. people who don't have private insurance, right? Now, that's not an out of, you know, like an insane idea. We do, do we did that for veterans, right? Um the federal government operates a system of hospitals for people who it deems deserving of care uh, and wants to provide it to. Right. There's no reason in principle, right, that couldn't – like they, they couldn't have just supplied the care, which would have done a lot to reduce healthcare inflation because they could just set the you know, price or the non-price, right? Right. Um, but instead they said we're basically going to give people coupons. Uh -huh. Um and right, that's basically what insurance is, is it's a coupon yeah. or it's a voucher is a good way of thinking about it. Right. Um, and um, in light of that, like the ACA is like the ultimate, like <laughs> it's like the ultimate intervening on the consum on the consuming. Well, everything, everything has been right. Like once right. you had this pattern in place, um, I mean, there have been efforts to establish Medicare for all. I mean, there was one in the 1910s. There was one in the 1930s. There was one in the 1940s. They kind of thought Medicare might somehow like gradually grow into it, but they didn't really have a strategy for how that would happen. In the 70s, they kind of thought about it again. Um, and then by the 90s and then 2000s, basically the solution increasingly was like, well, if you want to reform the healthcare system, you just have to buy off part of the industry. That's, like, that's the only way you can do it because the industry has become so embedded in like like 
the structure it's like the structure that holds so much of our society together now right um so you can't just go hacking off parts of it right which is what medicare for all would do <laughs> right 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 um well in, you know part of the reason were you gonna say something tom well i was just gonna say when you were talking about these these various attempts at the reforms is it true that as part of the new deal that uh roosevelt wanted to have some sort of like universal health care but the AMA stepped in and were concerned that the profession of doctor might lose its prestige. And it's so more, they kind more of... more or less true. What Roosevelt himself wanted is like a notoriously impossible question to answer. Roosevelt is like right. Sphinx, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, the committee that wrote the Social Security Act, it was called the Committee on Economic Security. And just let me add, the Social Security Act is not just the thing we call Social Security, right? It's also unemployment insurance, um, it's the thing we call welfare is in there also, which is today TANF, but at the time was aid to dependent children. Um, and a bunch of other stuff is in there too. It's like the whole welfare state is in there. Uh, and, um, right. And eventually Medicare and Medicaid, those are amendments to the social security act. Right. That's how they were passed. Um, so anyway, with that committee, when they wrote the bill, um, you know, they had various working groups, one of which was on the question of medical care. Uh, and the medical care working group wrote up a whole plan basically for what a kind of, you know, national health insurance system could look like that would be administered by the Social Security Administration. Um, and then uh, the AMA kind of flipped out. And it's interesting, right, because there was no organized hospital lobby really at this point or organized insurance lobby because those industries still had to be created by the process we've been talking about. It's really the doctors, um, and probably to a significant extent also just employers who uh, already were beginning to experiment with providing health care to their employees as a form of social control. Right. Um, yeah, we had like community hospitals here, or company hospitals here right, like the, the, right. or the checkoff system. Like the, the miners would – the coke operators would hire a doctor or a company doctor. To exactly, them. yeah. Um, and so between those forces um, – you know, the Committee on, the, on Economic Security basically gets word from somewhere in the administration, like, okay, we're not going to push this right now. Like, maybe we'll try again next year. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was widely thought among, you know, New Dealers that, like, eh, get close. We'll, do, we'll get it soon, you know. Mm -hmm, yeah. Truman, that Truman thought he would do it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, what? one of the reasons that I – wanted to sort of like dial in on the social social citizenship question is because it's like an important link in because like what your book does like you go from sites like you know you start with the factory in the mill like the site of like action and accumulation and then you go to the home which is like the site of caregiving and then the hospital but like I feel like social citizenship is kind of that like mediating force between like the factory and the home and you know kind of gets got gets spit back out the other side as earlier we were talking about like in the 60s and 70s medicare and medicaid and these other programs kind of sort of becoming like the nas in the gas tank like the fuel in the gas tank to building up these hospital hospitals if that happens you have to have people to work at them and one of the craziest things in your book was this ad that you found for like, I think it was like a nursing home. It was like in the seventies or eighties, and the ad like literally says like, 
are you a, a homemaker or a housewife? Like you have all the skills to come work in the nursing home, basically something like that. Like you just transfer your skills into this industry. <laughs> so it's like, I guess what I'm getting at is like social citizenship is that kind of like mediating force that kind of like determines what happens in the home. And, um, and then that kind of gets subsumed into this new hospital industry. I don't know if that's, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, one point I guess I like to make is that like the things that we often think of as like social welfare, welfare benefits, whether or not they're public or private, like we, we, we tend to think of those as like money, basically, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, oh, you have this benefit, it's worth this much for this number of weeks or whatever. And a lot of them are kind of like that. But actually, so like... The thing that welfare benefits in any form, whether you know pension, unemployment, health insurance, whatever, the thing that they provide um, is like again a kind of coupon for labor of some kind, often, right? Right. Um, and this is even true of like a lot of the ones that seem not like health insurance. That's kind of obvious in a certain way, but even like something like unemployment insurance for a steel worker. So like. You know, the Social Security Act has unemployment insurance in it, right? It's a state-federal cooperative program. But then uh, unionized industrial workers negotiate additional unemployment benefits. Uh, the steel workers won this in 56, I believe. Um, and, you know, the, the steel workers are, like, being laid off cyclically all the time. I mean, every couple of years you're laid off for a few months or something in a, you know, a little downward dip in the economy. Um, so it's an important benefit for them. But, like, what does it buy them, right? It, like, buys them like the food and, you know, the rent money and whatever, right? That like, then their wife is actually going to kind of put together into like them continuing to be alive and have a family. Right. Um, right. And in a certain way, it's not that different in that sense from like the way that health insurance buys you the attention of a nurse. Um, and so, you know, one thing I try to show in the book is like, as you say, social citizenship and the entitlements of social citizenship are in various ways either explicitly or implicitly, entitlements to labor uh, a lot of the time Mm -hmm. or in important ways. And, um, you know, then the we could talk more about what causes the kind of increasing demand for healthcare services in particular. But of course, it's always been true. And I think we all probably know this in our own lives. Like a lot of healthcare provision at the kind of bottom level of intensity happens in the family. Right. Like you take care of a sick kid or a sick parent or a sick loved one or whatever that happens in the family, you know, at a low level constantly um, before it happens in a hospital. And of course, in a society like mid-century industrial Pittsburgh, that's, you know, part of the social citizenship of the industrial family. Part of what it buys is the care of the wife and mother. Right. And like. If you grew up a girl in Pittsburgh in the 50s and 60s or something, you know, you got used to, you know, being sent to check in on and take care of your grandma after she got sick. You volunteered at the Catholic hospital. You just like that was part of life in your world and being a girl and then a woman in that community. Um, Right. Because it was connected to industrial work. Right. right? It was what industrial work bought through social citizenship. Um, And it was I mean, I think you even point out that it was kind of crucial to uh, you know the accumulation process itself like it was kind of a i don't know what the word would be a complementary aspect of like keeping the workforce kind of subdued is not maybe not the right word but you know what i mean like keeping yeah. them i mean this is not my insight this is like the core insight of you know marxist feminism going back a long time now right that like w- it's women's job to produce 
and reproduce and yeah. and maintain labor power it's like, that gets sold in the factory. Yes, yes, yes. It's the same dynamic that we pointed out at the top of this episode. You've got the, the steel worker in the home. He's present yet absent, right? Like he's, he's there, but he's not doing any of the work in the home. Where like the the wife or the homemaker or the kids like they're absent but present or you know what I mean they they are yeah. they're there yeah. but they're they're their work is not it's not recognized as such it's not like work you know what I mean yeah I mean what you I hadn't thought about it in this way but what you just say keep saying makes me think about um, you know a very common refrain from I bet uh, Coltown families have a version of this a uh, very common refrain from steelworker families which is you know the mills run twenty four hours a day. Um, three shifts, uh, it's too hot. So you can't, you can't turn it off and on for the night. You got to just keep it going. Right. Because um, it takes so long to heat it back up. Um, and, uh, you know, all steel workers, you know, would eventually, therefore, at some time be on, you know, the 4 p.m. to midnight or 3 p.m. to 11, depends which company shift, or the, or the midnight to uh, 8 a.m. shift. Um, and, you know, that means that their wives probably have to make a couple of dinners, Right. Um, and, uh, you know, clean off their grimy clothes when they get home in the middle of the night. Uh, very often steelworkers will like have a drink after they, you know, got off the shift because like they had to kind of calm their nerves down, basically. Right. Um, and, you know, so then he gets home, maybe a little drunk and that adds to whatever. Um, but and also a lot of these households had more than one steelworker in them. Right. Because like, although we have a kind of weird image of blue collar post-war America, it's like everyone's living in, you know, nice, like nuclear family, you know, 2.1 kid suburban, whatever. Right. Like actually that's just not what it was like at all. And it was really common. Like if you know, you're growing up in a household like this, you know, like you had a couple uncles living upstairs, right. you know, <laughs> shit like that. Um, yeah. And, um, <laughs> That was very normal, just because people actually had to cooperate economically to get by. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, think about what that means for these shift cycles and you know, all these kinds of questions. And, like, the, the story I was going to tell was, you know, how many I, – I just everyone I've met who grew up in a household like this talks about their mom hushing them during the day because dad is – you know, he has to sleep during the day because yeah, he's, yeah. you know, was working all night at the steel mill and he has to get some rest so he doesn't, like, go in a zombie to the mill tonight – and die, you know, in an accident or something, right? right? Yeah, that's still it's very like, much the same thing in coal, in, yeah, yeah. coal family. Yeah, third yeah. shift. Yeah. yeah, th- yeah. My so brother-in-law like, still works it, and every time I go to my sister's house, we got to kind of tippy-toe, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I thought of it, because what you're saying about the absent presence thing, right? It's like literally, uh, he's there, but he's asleep, right? right? Right. And everyone else has to not, although they're there, they have to not really be there, so they don't wake him up. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, well, it's like that that sort of like process, that dynamic gets kind of, like you said, like sort of subsumed into the, the care work at the hospital itself. And like maybe this is a kind of like, you know, we're, we're closing in on an hour here and I kind of want to start trying to like, you know, bring us up to the current moment. But like, you know, a big part of this book is about the crisis of the 70s. And obviously there's all kinds of debates on that. I'm not really smart enough to understand <laughs> even what it is <laughs> like what the crisis of the 70s was but like something that you did say in the book that i think is very fascinating and that i think a lot of our listeners will uh that will be interested in kind of like exploring a little bit is like we talked about how like that role of that sort of like caregiving um it it serves a, f- a social function right it's like serving a society-wide function 
Um, and then obviously once you kind of like build that out into a massive industry, like you're dealing with all the sort of, you know, concurrent issues of the day, addiction and, and everything else. But like there is this other aspect of this that I find very fascinating. And you mention it with just like one line, but I think it's very fascinating is that the rise of this industry kind of is is similar in many ways to the rise of mass incarceration. And I kind of like just wanted to ask you about that. Like, is it yeah. like that we have this massive surplus population and they need to need to be cared for, um, you know, because of the crisis of the 70s and 80s? Or, or um, is it even more expansive than that? No, I mean, I think that's the right way of thinking about it. Uh, it you know, this is a comparison that I think is useful and I hope is important. But you've got to be careful with it yeah, in various right. ways, right? Uh, it first dawned on me when I was doing research, uh, a kind of side or tangent that arose out of this book. And I eventually wrote up as a separate article and then summarized really quickly in this book. Uh, I was doing research on this horrific episode of nursing home abuse in Pittsburgh in the 70s. Um, huge public nursing home, 2,200 beds. So like your average general hospital is like few, like three, 400 beds, just to give you a sense of how big we're talking here. Um County owned, and uh, basically, uh, you know, we, you mentioned surplus population. One thing the book tries to show is how deindustrialization makes the population older and poorer, obviously, mm-hmm. and also sort of sicker and more disabled, both because of the direct health effects of deindustrialization and industrial work before it, right? Those things take a toll directly on people's health and bodies, but also they cut them off from other kind of forms of social support and social access. Um, and so if they can get sucked up into the health system, uh, that, that gives them some access to those things, which means that in a weird way, there are not advantages, but there's kind of something that you get from being sick. Right. right. Um, that doesn't mean people like pretend to be sick. It means that like, you know, realistically, we're all kind of a little sick, especially after some decades in a place like the industrializing Pittsburgh. And so, this, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the kind of health aspects of your larger social situation are going to be how you get yourself access to social services and support. What this means is that um, nursing like this nursing home, you know, it's county owned. It's for the poorest elderly and disabled people, therefore, is becomes very overcrowded. Um and it's like about it's at like 110% capacity or something like that. And meanwhile, it's becoming increasingly understaffed because deindustrialization is also fucking with, uh, you know, the finances of the county, uh, right, which draws its uh, revenue from taxing steel mills, but steel mills aren't operating. Right. Um, so that means that the staff have been cut and overcrowding and understaffing. That's the that's the um, formula basically for nursing home abuse. Um, and so, you know, I found these records of this episode where, like, this period of time where, you know, these overworked staff people in this nursing home are basically mechanically and chemically sedating the patients because they can't manage their needs. And then this is kind of escalating. And as the patients kind of resist it to the extent that they're able, some of them start to kind of get tortured, basically. Um, yeah. And I was like, this, I mean, it's, you can't see this and not think about the way the prisons are growing in a very similar dynamic at the same time. Right. Uh, it's a, in both cases, it's about like these kind of imbalances that arise because of deindustrialization and surplus population, and then like what kinds of position? What, sorry, what kinds of institutions are positioned to grab people up? Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's it's a very interesting thing to think about because, um, you know, I had written this 
thing about this drug enforcement program, uh, you know, basically because like there was these books out about like the opioid epidemic, right? And like we have this kind of like accepted, uh, inherited view of how the opioid epidemic happened, right? But it's like once I actually started like digging into like the news archives and everything, it kind of became more clear that it was the the crisis was constructed. But not just that, like it happened at this very specific moment of, you know, the final end game of the coal industry, right? Like you get mountaintop removal. Like this, this happened during, um, like the '90s, like the the organized abandonment of the coal industry, and uh, and then you like look at um, this drug enforcement program. It's called Operation Unite, and like the people that sat on the board of it were like healthcare executives from around here, and they, uh, you know filled up the jails and now you have this situation where um drug enforcement is kind of like our county government's best source of revenue in a way because they can sell bonds to keep building more jails because there will always be people who are addicted and selling illegal drugs and everything um all of which is to say that like i was thinking of that like when i read your book and you kind of see a similar process you know occurring in places like pittsburgh you've got this crisis that is not just like an economic crisis of unemployment and everything else but it has these reverberations through like the municipal uh administrations and trying to like plot out the future there's one industry that's kind of like standing there ready to absorb all that like i think you i think you even use the term like medical shock absorber like it's the healthcare industry and they're there to um they're there to absorb a lot of that sort of social disruption caused by that deindustrialization. Um, so I just, you know, we've kind of outlined that process. We've outlined, you know, how like the the tasks and duties and roles of the home kind of got subsumed into the the workforce of those places. But like to kind of just bring us full circle, I kind of just wanted to talk about like the the current healthcare landscape. I mean. Because the last bit of your book talks about, like, corporate consolidation of a lot of these healthcare giants. And, like, earlier we had talked about, like, Medicare reform. Probably don't want to get into, like, the, <laughs> the weeds on, like, pricing of individual, like, <laughs> procedures and everything. But I, I just, yeah, I kind of wanted to ask you about, um, yeah, the process of sort of corporate consolidation of a lot of these hospitals. And, and you know, what we're looking at now when we, we we look out and we look out at the the sort of like landscape of of healthcare in this country yeah i mean you know i'm a little reluctant to weigh in on like the present present because you know i'm a historian and my yeah. book kind of runs out of gas about 20 years ago um, <laughs> but that's like the respectable limit that's still history <laughs> um, yeah. but i guess i'll say you know i do think uh, i mean the book makes this argument about how deindustrialization first you know the workers industrial workers welfare state and second deindustrialization kind of feed the into the healthcare industry right make position the healthcare industry as the shock absorber cause it to grow as everything else around it shrinks and kind of suck in you know deindustrializing society kind of into itself um, and you know at some level the kind of initial impetus for that you know seems to kind of be gone in some ways right like the there are no longer huge numbers of steelworkers getting laid off or something like that. Um, but I do think that uh, we got kind of locked into like a past dependency where the healthcare industry, like, 
is the thing that absorbs social problems and in particular social inequality uh, to a significant extent like became medicalized like it's just uh, well, let me explain how I think this works I guess um, basically I think that uh, the overall kind of downward pressure over the last generation or two on working class people's standard of living and this is a story the book tells a part of has forced uh, what economists call the increase of household labor supply, which means that more members of households have to work more, right? Um, and in particular, the main form that that took between like 1970 and 2000 was women entering the workforce in large numbers in the working class. Um, and, you know, then the kind of disintegration of job quality, uh, like part-time jobs, this kind of shit, um, has kind of further fragmented the kind of everyday routines of working class households and families and their ability to kind of like continue to, uh, you know, care for themselves and each other kind of internally, um, which means that this, like, this is the opening that the healthcare system kind of, through which the healthcare system steps into our lives, right? Um, it's the reason that home health, home healthcare is the fastest growing job in the country and has been for years now and will be for the foreseeable future, um, Home, home health aides are doing things that like wives once did, right? Um, and that's not all bad, or it's even in some ways not mostly bad, right? Like the idea that women, you know, are equal participants in the labor market is important and good. Um, but, uh, you know, home health aides are like, you know, paid like shit everywhere in the country and often treated like shit. Um, and, you know, that system has gotten increasingly detached from the kind of like, thing that you think about when someone says healthcare and medicine, which is like doctors and hospitals. Yeah. Um, and so like the, like keeping you alive in a day to day way and, you know, like treating your cancer when it happens are like have increasingly become pretty distinct kind of sets of institutions that do that where they used to be closer together. And again, that's not all bad. Um, but I think it does mean that, um, you know, the health, I guess this is a kind of generic statement, but the healthcare system, like, has become so large and so complex that we, like, we depend on different and multiple forms of it in different and multiple kind of parts of our lives and over the course of different parts of our lives. Um, again, quite in contrast to, like, a steelworker in 1960 who was born in a homestead hospital, whose kids were born in a homestead hospital, and who died in a homestead hospital. Right. right? <laughs> um, yeah. And... Um, you know, this makes the system very difficult to reform, I think. Well, uh, as, be, sorry, go ahead. No, I don't want to interrupt you, but like as you as you pointed out, this system was politically and socially constructed, not necessarily in the same way that like steel was or coal was with like investments and capital. Like, this was a socially and politically constructed system. And as such, it contains a lot of these contradictions that are very as soon as you start to try to tackle them. It, I don't know. It. it triggers it sets off a whole other sort of array of contradictions yeah i mean i say in the book you know like the main way that healthcare appears in our national politics as a problem is as a uh as a set of costs that we need to get down right yeah um but the set of costs that we need to get down are actually like why healthcare is a solution to every other problem right it has all of these costs that we need to get down because it 
it's proliferated so many kind of tentacles that can do so many different things that no one else can do or will do, right? right. And again, that's not to say like the healthcare system is good as it is by any stretch. Um, just that like it's kind of sucked everything into itself, I suppose. Yeah, well, maybe that's a maybe a um, a good way to ask this last question, which I think would be good to end on. Um, I guess this last question would be like, why this way of looking at this? And the reason I ask that is because some of the criticisms and stuff I read of the book is like, I don't know, someone. I think you're a social justice warrior, apparently, Gabe, uh, a new cultural <laughs> economist or some shit. Um, but like, but I, you know, obviously, for me, the answer is like, you don't use this word at all in the book. But like, to me, you're outlining a dialectical process. It's like um, just walking through these various uh, stages and sites, you know, throughout history and looking at how some, you know, there are parts of them that get dropped out <clears throat> of some of them. And they get subsumed back into the next one. And so, like, I'm just asking, I guess, why this kind of lens or or or, uh, or way of looking at this? What, yeah, what, I mean, what I, applications I, does it I'm have? I'm glad you describe it as dialectical. I very strongly agree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I guess from my perspective, um, what historical materialism allows us to do is to confront our own situation and to think about what are the kind of forces, the historical forces that have produced our situation, always, all of which have in some ways a kind of negative and a positive side, right? Um, that's not to say like you need to celebrate what's going on or whatever, or but, you know, but that, you know, uh, the historical development of capitalism is contradictory, right? It generates both exploitation and oppression and misery, and at the same time always is generating a form of possibility for human liberation, right, uh, within itself, that it's, that, it's, that it's also stamping out all the time. Uh, and that's a very generic description of it, but then, you know, in any given society, in any given moment, you, you got to look at, okay, how, wh what are the versions of that that are happening here, now, right? Like, how do we, like, what are the materials that are kind of being assembled by the automatic processes of capitalism, that might uh, enable people to kind of then act kind of in willful and deliberate solidaristic ways. And that's how I view this story. It's like it's a story, you know, the reason I think of it as a story of class formation or kind of partial or potential class formation at least um, is because, you know, my view is like there are structural forces that simultaneously make the care workforce, the care industries and the care workforce grow and also prevent it from um, achieving economic security and well-being. And moreover, those same forces also cause the rest of society to depend on these workers while preventing the quality of the care that they get from being humane and reasonable, right? And so for, from my perspective, like the care system in general and the healthcare system in particular maybe um, kind of bind us together and create all these relationships of interdependency that have a real positive valence at some level, right? Like the idea that there is kind of collective capacity in society that has expanded for taking care of elders and children and disabled people and every, each one another, right? Um, 
and that that doesn't have to just be mediated through like kinship. Um, that's actually a good idea from my perspective. Um, it's just that it's happened in the shell of these kind of private and, you know, uh, exploitative entities um, and institutions. And that's the kind of central contradiction that I think, you know, if we kind of think of that as a terrain of possible struggle, um, it gives real potentiality to, you know, all kinds of even like ordinary everyday struggles, like how many nurses are going to be on this shift? How often is my, um, you know, my, my grandmother in a nursing home going to get checked in on? Um, you know, these kinds of issues, uh, I think, like, arise out of a really, really deep structural contradiction in our society, which potentially gives power to struggles around them. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I'm glad you said that. And, and, and it's not to say that, like, um, the choices that were made, like, in the – it's like you said earlier. It's like – I guess it's easier for us to say – to look back and say, like, oh, that was a stupid choice. Like, they were selling their workers down – the river or uh or you know <laughs> like the the you know manly workers who participated in still like they uh they uh you know relished their masculine role in the home and all this i mean it's it's like we're applying like current you know it's moralizing it does no it does no good to moralize in right that way i mean you can think whatever you want it doesn't actually help you see anything differently about our situation and what we could do about it exactly yeah you're taking yeah you, i told a friend uh, a mutual friend uh jack norton as like when i was reading your book i was like you know like chef's kiss like the dialectics man it's like <laughs> it's like it's like it really does it 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 sho it's a book that shows you how to do historical materialism honestly because it's like um for me i i i guess i hadn't really thought about uh how it's not just a coincidence that you know this industry falls and then the other rises like there has to be a sort of interfacing process there and like the two feed or have to have to feed off of each other um, and the way that you see that is like this a the social role that it fills and b the internal dynamics and contradictions of those workforces themselves like you can detect it it's like i mean there's debate over whether marxism is a science but like you know we're we're, we're not like applying these sort of like moralizing principles to it or, or anything like that this is a strictly scientific you know dialectical analysis of how these how like how this institution as you put it became socially and politically constructed rather than just like a strict like business investment that people thought would make a lot of money it's like no it's it's more complicated than that yeah i mean you know and in some ways the way that it has so often been an afterthought like you know these aren't real employees from then to now right um, arises out, uh, I mean, its quality as an afterthought, exterior to the real economy, an adjunct, a helper, right? It's like institutionally the healthcare system had the kind of position of wife, right? To the husband of, of manufacturing. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, you know, I don't know. It's probably a good place to, to end it. I don't, you know, I, I could keep talking about this, but I'm not going to take all your day, Gabe. Um, and uh, but I just you know encourage everybody to read it. Like I said, it's it's also just a good um, it's also just a good sort of manual of how to sort of look around at your own community and say, 
oh, this is a thing that exists. I mean, why does why does it exist that way? You know, because like these are the questions that Tom and I have been asking for years. Like, why, you know, why is the healthcare industry the biggest employer in the region now? I mean, uh, you know, you can you can apply this method to um, this you know, historical method to kind of like understand how these institutions came into existence. Um, and that's why, like at the top of the show, it's like, yo, it it truly does weigh like a nightmare, though. It's like, right? It's like so, some of them can't die out. They contain a lot of the same sort of tensions and contradictions that were always there for like decades, but like in this like kind of reconstituted, regurgitated form that makes it extremely hard to sort of understand or uh, or or interact with. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a good way of describing the healthcare system. It's extremely hard to understand and interact with. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we we certainly know that. I, Tom, and I have definitely uh, had no shortage of interaction with our local healthcare industry. So, yeah. Um, but Gabe, thanks so much for coming by and talking about the book. Um, the book thanks is for called, having me. This is great. Yeah. The book is called the next shift. Anything else you want to plug? You got, like I said earlier, you got a podcast about EP Thompson. I haven't listened to it yet. Cause I don't want any spoilers, man. Is that the one you read, and Alex Press did? Yeah. It was a limited run. It, just to be clear, it's not an yeah, ongoing right, project. Right, right. Early, early <laughs> pandemic. Right. Uh, let me just say while we're, you know, before we stop, Alex, it arose because Alex was going to read, a, read the making of the English working class allowed on a live stream it's like a 900 page book <laughs> interesting digging <laughs> your own early grave. lockdown experiment or something yeah. like that and i was like don't do that let's like let's like you know let's do this <laughs> true masochist shit right there yeah. wasn't that the one who was it which which mp was it uh that, that John jumped McDonald. in yeah 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 jumped in with y'all that that's yeah, it was very cool. So we kind of had a you know discussion group that went along with it and so on. Oh wait, he uh, joined y'all's podcast? Yeah. Fuck, I didn't know. It was that. very cool. That's um, the shit. You know, I mean, he's an old socialist. You know, he yeah. more than Corbin. I think Corbin is a good dude, but like, kind of comes out of like an ethical pacifist. You know, I'm gonna yeah. sit down in front of the South African embassy type tradition. Very yeah. respectable and honorable. McDonald, I think, comes much more from like a kind of like Irish you know, immigrant to England, working class, Liverpool, like Marxist tradition. Right. Uh, and so he was all, you know, he like, he knew the book really well. He read it, I think, you know, multiple times in his life. Damn. Um, yeah, it was cool. That's awesome. Um, well, anyways, yeah, like it, it, it's not an ongoing series, but, um, but I, I do think that it's complimentary to kind of like what you're, uh, you know, talking about in the book. Yeah. And I'm then, always thinking about E.P. Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, you've been published at uh, many other places, uh, all of which you could find with quick Google search, I'm sure. But anyways, uh, buy the book. Um, any other final thoughts, fellas? All hearts and minds clear, it seems. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for listening this week, everybody. We will see you next time. Adios. <laughs>